chapter 8 of Mark, uh, the book of Mark today. Um, we are in the 25th chapter, uh, 25th week of our series uh, called The Story. And so uh, we're going to pick up part of that here in Mark chapter 8. It was October of 2019 when my mom passed away. And uh, that entire year, starting uh, even a little before that, um, was a little bit of a challenge for my brother and I because... My mom was, uh, her health was slipping pretty fast, and it was pretty clear that we needed to move her into uh, a place that could provide a little bit more care than we, what we were able to do. Uh, that my brother lived in uh, South Dakota. I was down here near Wichita. My mom's up near Topeka, and it just got a little, uh, little hairy for us trying to figure that out. Um, but we, in early in 2019, we moved her into this place, and then uh, the next time that both my brother and I were in town at the same time was near Mother's Day. We decided to go visit her. And uh, we're chatting in her room with her. My brother's on one side of the bed. I'm on the other side of the bed. And we're, she's just asking some, some questions. Some of it makes sense. Some of it doesn't. Um, again, her health was slipping pretty good. And she stops mid-sentence, uh, looks at my brother and points at him and says, I know who you are. And then she looks over at me on the other side of the bed. And she points at me and said, but I don't know who you are. And I looked at mom. I said, mom, I'm Nick. I'm your oldest son. And she said, I know that. And then she said, but who are you? And so if you understood kind of the relational dynamic between my brother and I and my mom, we, we, we could get a little facetious with that and said, Mom, that really is the question of all questions, isn't it? Who are you? Um, identity. That is the tricky and sticky business of life. In fact, I, I believe it is one of the main questions that Scripture teaches us that we need to figure out in life. I think there's two main ones, actually. First one, we need to uh, know the answer to the question, who is God? And then we need to know the answer to the question, who am I? And I would suggest to you that Scripture teaches us that we can't answer the second question unless we know the answer to the first question. We, we won't know the truth of the second question of who am I unless we know the truth of the first question, who is God? And I think that's at the base of all living, is figuring out who God is and who I am in light of that. Like I said earlier, if you're just joining us, we are in a series called The Story, and it's a big, giant, long series that we have been, uh, a journey that we've been taking uh, through the entire Bible chronologically. We started out in the Old Testament in the beginning and have worked our way to a place that we're at in the New Testament. And we learned that in our time in the Old Testament that every single story we read in there and every encounter we had at this point in the story was pointing us toward this guy named Jesus. And then a few weeks ago, we were finally able to land in the Gospels, the beginning of the New Testament, that complemented that, 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 that made that fit, that showed us who this Jesus is. When we got to the New Testament a few weeks ago, we learned from the Gospels, as well as some other historical writings, that Jesus walked this earth some 2,000 years ago. He was a son and a brother and a teacher. We, we learned that from the ages of 12 to about 30, that we really don't know a whole lot that happened in his life, but that it was likely he was studying like most Jewish boys. He would have probably been memorizing the Torah, and by sometime around the age 15 or so, he would have memorized the Tanakh. Now, what's the Tanakh? That's what we refer to as the Old Testament. He would have been memorizing all of that. 
We also learned that there was some controversy around his birth. I mean, a virgin birth? How is this possible? It doesn't make sense on this side of eternity. Jesus would have grown up in a small town, too. We know the name of that town is Nazareth. And word gets around this small town about this guy from this kind of weird setting, this weird background. Um, Some archaeologists think that the population of this town was somewhere between 150 to 200 people, which means that in this room right now, we're bigger than the town that Jesus was raised in. It's no wonder that guys like Nathaniel in John chapter 1 said, when referring to Jesus, can anything good come from Nazareth? It was kind of backwoods. It was out of the way, backwater. It was just a small town. Nothing good really comes out of that. But we also learn in our time so far that at some point, this kind of narrative changes. It's not that Jesus went out seeking attention from a bunch of people, but the ministry he was doing brought that attention to him. His reputation spread. He began to become known. And people began asking, who's this guy? Who is Jesus? And I think it's in Mark chapter 8 that we tackle this topic of identity and really the identity of the Lord so that we can figure out the identity of ourself. But in order to do that, the way that the narrative flows in Mark chapter 8 is that we come at it from a perspective of being able to see who he is. And so we tackle this topic of spiritual blindness in figuring this out. And I think that that's going to be very important as we try to understand this. Matter of fact, John chapter, or excuse me, Mark chapter 8 starts with Jesus feeding another large group of people. Earlier, we talked about Jesus feeding 5,000 people. In this part of the story, he's feeding 4,000 people. We're told that he has compassion on those that are with him, and he understands that they're not satisfied because they're hungry. And so he, he gathers up, again, the fish and the bread, just a little bit that they have, and miraculously feeds 4,000 people. Now, this miracle is critical for understanding what happens throughout us identifying who Jesus is. Because immediately, the the miraculous feeding of the 4,000 people, we go straight from there to Jesus and his disciples jumping on a boat, going across the sea. And we read here in just a second that when he gets across the sea, he's being followed by a group of Pharisees who their sole goal was just to argue with him. Now, that sounds like a pretty rough day. (laughs) that you just do this miraculous thing, show all this compassion, and the only thing people want to do is argue with you. But let's see what they were arguing about. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 11. This is what we read. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, No sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went on to the other side. So the Pharisees seek him out, wanting to argue with him to test him and say, give us a sign. And the text says that Jesus sighed deeply. If you pause right there for a second, you can almost hear him doing that. This is the only time this word is used in all of the scripture. And it really means that there was this low growl or this kind of growing groan that he had. And you could hear and feel the frustration he had with the Pharisees. 
See, he sighed deeply because these Pharisees represent a type of group of people who are spiritually blind. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And so they followed him after he just did this miraculous event and said, give us a sign. And he told them there is no sign because the sign is actually standing before you. I can't reveal anything else more than myself, in other words. See, they were skeptics. But their type of skepticism is the kind that masquerades itself as tough-minded and righteous, but it really is only stiff-necked. They are blind because they choose to be blind. You know someone like that? Do you know someone like that? That no, Jesus could be standing in front of them himself, and they still choose not to accept the truth that's right there before them. Well, we get another group of blind people. We call them the disciples. They get on the boat with Jesus from this place, and they sail again across uh, the, the sea. And as they are on the boat and they're in the middle of the sea, they realize, oh, man, we only have one piece of bread amongst us all. What are we going to do? And remember, Jesus was just very, very frustrated with the Pharisees. And so he's trying to teach his followers in this boat, hey, don't be like these guys. He says, don't let the Pharisees' leaven come in and infect you. And they're going, yeah, but we only have one piece of bread. And he's saying, look, at some point I'm not going to be with you here, but don't, let, don't become blind like them. Don't choose to not see the truth in front of you. Yeah, but what are we going to do? We only have one piece of bread. And you can see Jesus' frustration in the text here also. And he says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Like, do you have eyes but you can't see? Do you have ears and you can't hear? Like, you're arguing over one piece of bread. Where did we just come from? How many of us miss Jesus in front of us because we are concerned with our own types of bread. Because we are concerned with things that God looks like, eh, that's not a big deal. We know about God's miraculous provision because we've experienced it time and time and time again. But we are blind because we just missed the point of it all. And the point of it is this, that Jesus, the Son of God, is with us. He's with us. The provider is with us. Yeah, 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 but I only got one piece of bread. What are we going to do? Jesus reminds them about the feeding of the 5,000. Hey, what did we start with there? Oh, yeah, just a few pieces of fish, a few pieces of bread. And how many basketfuls did we have after that? Well, 12. Okay, where did we just come from? We just fed 4,000 people with what? Just a few pieces of bread and a few pieces of fish. And how many basketfuls did we have left over after that? Well, seven. And you're arguing over one piece of bread? Don't you get it? I'm with you right now. I'm with you right now. They're worried about not having enough food, but they are blind to the point that Jesus is with them. Well, then they stop in a town called Bethsaida. And as if on point, there is an actual blind person that they encounter. And Jesus does some weird things here. He spits on the man's eyes, lays his hands on them, 
And he pulls him back. He says, all right, what do you see? And the man said, well, I can kind of see some people, but they all look like sticks and trees and stuff. And so Jesus throws his hands back on him, and he pulls him back. He says, all right, now what do you see? And the text says that he saw everything. It's almost as if that's the point. Yeah, he, get, he got it. He saw that the healer was right there. Right there. He saw everything. It is another miracle to demonstrate how faith in Christ leads us to this spiritual blindness removal. Well, it almost appears as if they get it, or at least some of them are starting to get it. Because after this part of the narrative, they go to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is the farthest away from Jerusalem that we get in all of our Gospels. This is the farthest that Jesus and his traveling companions go, um, about 20, 25 miles or so northwest of Jerusalem. Um, they get to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus takes them to a hill, or this, it's called Mount Hermon. You can actually go visit this hill or this mountain today. And if you were to go do that, you'd see on the side of this mountain that there are all these little tiny windows. And in those windows back in Jesus' day, they would have been filled with these different idols, all to, to bring in worship to the Greek god called Pan. Now, Pan has kind of an interesting sort of backstory that goes with this. Pan was the god of the wild, the shepherds, the flock, the flocks, nature, and mountains. And also, like every other Greek god, he's also a god of fertility. Because apparently, if you're a Greek god, you have to be a god of fertility. It's in all of them. Um, and so you come there and you seek direction for those kind of parts of your life to, to come with that. And then at the foot of this mountain, there's this cave that the ancient Greeks believed was a gateway to the god of the underworld, underworld Hades. The god of the underworld, Hades. Hades, again, the god of the underworld and the god of fertility. If you're a Greek god, you got to be god of fertility. It's just kind of comes with the package. It's just the way it goes. But the way that they would kind of tap into that spirituality is that they would do these very detestable things to incite and, and bring on the attention of the gods. And so Jesus is walking them through this um, in this whole kind of worship of Pan. Now, Pan is also the Greek word for all. And we get this kind of from his background, from Pan's background. There's a story in Greek mythology that Pan's mother wanted a child so badly that she went and had relations with as many gods as she could find. One story says there's up to 108 gods. And so because of that, many Pans were birthed, and many pans were worshipped throughout their kind of mythos right there. It's also where we get English words like pandemonium and panic and pandemic because pan means all or all-encompassing. And this hill was a way to worship and incite really all of the Greek mythos. So in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, we read this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And they strictly charged him to tell no one. Very interesting that Jesus would stand before this visual image of all these gods and ask them, who is it that you say that I am? 
And for Peter to come up with this answer is a type of miracle. In Matthew's account, we have Jesus responding to Peter saying this, to Peter confessing this, and he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father. You see, we will never see Jesus as Lord and the Son of God unless we allow him to heal our spiritual blindness, unless God reveals what we cannot see for ourselves. To see the truth of Jesus, we must find our own identity in him, not kind of come up with our own answers about him. The problem of spiritual blindness is true then as it is true today is not due to a lack of evidence. It is simply a dark and dull blindness that only God can cure. Are you spiritually blind still? Are you ready to allow God to reveal his truth to you? Who do you say that Jesus is in a world that's not friendly to him? In a backdrop, in a backdrop of idols dotted all over the place. Who do you say that Jesus is? You see, at the heart of the Christian faith is Peter's confession. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Many of us have stood in this space right over here and made that same confession before uh, the whole congregation and publicly so the public can hear us claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Because it's a realization of a mighty work of God that's being done in us. It is God revealing himself to us. And so Jesus takes this opportunity and begins teaching them, because you are able to confess this, this is what you need to know that you're confessing. We pick up in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and here's Peter again, took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples... Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think Peter is so much like many of us that on fire for the Lord one second, and then the very next trying to take his job. Like trying to be the one in command of what God's plan is really going to be. But the truth is this. No one sees Jesus, truly anyway, who will not see his suffering who will not see his rejection and death and resurrection at the heart of God's plan for the lost sinner. What do you see when you see Jesus? Why did Jesus say to Peter, after he just confessed him as the Messiah, but then tried to rebuke him, why did, why did Jesus act so harshly and say, get behind me, Satan? Well, I think it's because of this. Nothing is more at the heart of Satan's work in this world than blinding people to the absolute necessity of Jesus' suffering, death, rejection, and resurrection to accomplish God's will. As far as Satan is concerned, go ahead and call yourself a Christian. Go ahead and say that you think Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Just leave out the cross. Just leave out the resurrection. Just leave out the transformation that is to occur in your heart and in your life. Because that's where he gets victory. Do not allow the point of it all, that God is with you and is transforming you and is your Lord, because then Satan will have that victory. Jesus quickly diagnosed Peter's blindness. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
And Peter, like most of us, did not want too much from Jesus. He wanted too little. I mean, most of us want a Lord that will give us what we want. We want, we can be like the Pharisees. Man, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Demonstrate to us. Show us who you are. Or we can be like the disciples where he's done all this miraculous work in our lives. And we just choose not to accept it. We just, we, we just are ignorant of it. But, but, but I only have one piece of bread. Most of us want God to make our lives easier, to give us the job we want or the promotion we want, the one who fixes tickets, the one who keeps our taxes low, a Jesus who will just be that magic genie. Man, show us a sign. Show us a sign. But Jesus says that's not what it is. That's not who I am. When you say that I am the, uh, the Messiah, the Son of God, this is who I am. Look, pick up in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. See, we are still blind if we confess all of these things, but we do not see that all of this is lost if we gain the entire world, yet we still forfeit our souls. Will you continue in your spiritual blindness, or will you let God reveal himself to you and through you and take up your cross and follow Mark Buchanan tells of a story of two different times when he traveled to the Maasai, um, to the Maasai Mara, a vast grassland that is stretched over the fertile uh, plains of East Africa. Um, he tells uh, uh, of this uh, safari destination that he went to, uh, of many who, see, who wish to see elephants, who wish to see cheetahs and gazelles and, and wildebeest and water buffaloes, giraffes, crocodiles, rhinos, hippos, and many other creatures who are furry or scaly or have horns or they're tusked. Um, stuff that you don't get to see every day in Kansas in the wild. Um, he said that he went on two trips that had two very different guys, and this is what he wrote about those trips. The first one, um, he had a guy named Stephen, and he says this, Stephen was a Maasai man in his early 20s who grew up a few miles from the very ground we crossed together. The land was in his blood, every hillcock and grove and bend of river. He knew in his bones the personal histories of many of the animals we saw. He had an intuition for finding animals that, at least to a suburban living white guy like me, who thinks, like a, thinks a squirrel is a major wildlife sighting, seemed supernatural. He would stop and gaze at something two kilometers in the distance. It looked to me like more, more like grass and acacia, but he would drive toward it. Maybe 300 yards away, I'd finally see what he saw, a mother rhino and its baby grazing in a scrub brush or a pride of lions sleeping beneath a tree or a pair of cheetahs stunning themselves on a shelf of rock. William, on the other hand, uh, was another guy and was a man in his mid-50s who grew up in Nairobi. He couldn't see for looking, but he wasn't looking anyhow. He spent most of his time uh, chatting on a CB with his friends. He just followed the crowd, and wherever other vehicles congested, he went. We saw the animals, yes, but we saw them from within a swarm of dozens, sometimes hundreds of other sightseers, each jockeying for a better view. One time, we were traveling alone from the pack, a herd of elephants grazed at the roadside mere feet away. William sailed past them because he just didn't see them. Now, I read this to you for this reason. 
Jesus is the Son of God, and he is with you. And so our call is to pay attention. We could miss him entirely if we, re- if we choose to remain in our spiritual blindness. Today could be the day that you step out of that and you can see clearly for the first time. If you would like to make a decision to follow Jesus for maybe the first time in your life, we've got some folks at the decision point who would love to walk with you in that decision. And maybe you've kind of just been existing in this for some time. Maybe you've seen God at work, but you, you, you're just ignorant of it, that, that, I choose, that I put the blinders back on. If you need help praying through some of that, again, those folks at the decision point would love to meet with you and pray with you about that. When we sing this song, if you've got a decision to make, make your way to that point, and uh, we'll walk with you in that. Would you stand as we sing?